Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. I'm going to say the version of the angelic salutation, the so-called Hail Mary, that we use in our tradition. Hail, O Virgin Theotokos, Mary full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, for thou hast borne Christ, the Savior of our souls. Most Holy Mother of God, pray for us. Amen. How are you all doing this evening? How is the food? Nobody applauded that was still in line. Someone asked me if I was a bad chef, and is that why I got a black hat? <laughs> that, that was pretty good. Just a few announcements. I apologize that we're getting uh, started a little on the late side, but this is a, a new type of event for us. We didn't know, really know how it would go and uh, who would show up and so forth, but it looks wonderful and, uh, and good crowd. So I just a few announcements before we get started. Those are standing in line. Just feel free to stand in line. How many of you brought a Bible with you tonight? Ah, that's not bad. That's not bad, Catholics. Very good. Uh, the, all the flyers are over there, so you can, you can find out all the details about our upcoming events. But I'll just review very quickly for you that we started our new, our second quarter of our academic year just this past Thursday, and we're right back in the swing of things. In fact, technically we have three programs this week, if you include tonight, Thursday, and next Saturday, none of which you're going to want to miss because, well, you're already here, obviously you want to be here, but this Thursday, Dr. O'Donnell, for the second part of his series on the Gospel of John, on the Book of Signs, the first 12 chapters, uh, began last Thursday, and he will continue that, and I heard rave reviews of last Thursday's program, so I highly recommend, if you didn't make the first one, you can always come to the second, it's okay, we'll welcome you with open arms. Um, then, this coming Saturday... This coming Saturday is the Saturday before the March for Life. And we have a special speaker coming in, uh, Father Robert Spitzer, who is a very well-known philosopher and uh, has presented numerous programs on EWTN. The first time I saw this guy speak, I was blown away because I was studying philosophy and everything I was racking my brain to understand was just pouring out of his mouth without a thought. And, uh, and the guy's phenomenal, really phenomenal. And we're going to be over at uh, St. Anthony of Padua in Falls Church. You can pick up Father Spitzer's book over at Pastor Lamb. Uh, they have, I believe, ten copies. Is that right? Five copies left. They can get some more. Um, but uh, uh, you want to pick up his book over there. He may have a few copies with him, but I don't think he's traveling out for the March for Life. He probably won't. So with five copies left, if I were you, I'd get up early in the morning. What time do you open? What's that? 10 o'clock, okay, 10 o'clock over at Pasco Land, you guys can all be waiting in line. So that's their next Saturday. At St. Anthony of Pado, it's our first time going to that parish, and I ask you, as I always do, when we go to a new parish, 
please make every effort to come out because, you know, the pastor doesn't quite know us and the people don't quite know us. We have to go there, present a nice program so we can start to build interest in learning about the things of God. Um, so please make, make an effort to do that. Also, while my mind's on it, the March for Life. If you say, I'm too busy, you're wrong. If you say you're too old, I'd say, you know, you got to start living sometime. <laughs> get out there. And you know, well, if you get hurt along the way, what better way to go than marching for life? All right? There's people in wheelchairs. I Okay, when I was at Christendom, I found a guy that was blind, and he was walking through the crowd trying to find the restroom. Okay? This massive crowd. And so I grabbed his hand, and I walked into the restroom, and uh, and he told me, I'm going to be fine. Go ahead. Leave me. I'll be fine. You know, so we can go out there and, and get a little bit cold and bundle up and... and uh, I encourage that. Also, Deacon Keith Fournier is going to be with us, um, a, a well-known speaker. He's a, a editor at Catholic Online, and uh, he's a lawyer. He's also getting his doctorate in moral theology. He's almost finished with that at Catholic University uh, on a two-part series on the fundamentals of Catholic moral teaching on ethics. Okay, So it's kind of an extension of what Father Spitzer is beginning and uh, I, again, recommend that. Two Sunday nights in a row at St. Timothy's, another new parish for us, so please make every effort to come out for that. Um, Christopher Check will be coming back to us for Hammer of the Heretics, uh, St. Athanasius, and the Council of Nicaea. Don't you love my titles? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, I had fun with that one. And then St. James, the Martyrdom of St. James and the Making of Catholic Spain with uh, Dr. Brendan McGuire, who's returning after his bout with cancer. And uh, this will be his first time back with us. And he's just a phenomenal historian. So I recommend uh, those programs to you. Can you guys hear me okay back there? Is that all right? Okay. We're having a little bit of problem with the audio on the, on the uh, Internet because we're still using my old computer, I ordered a new computer after a Christmas fundraising drive. Thank you all very, very much. The first thing I do is uh, we need a computer that we can actually broadcast this stuff with. So it's on order, but uh, we're dealing with some old equipment. So those that are watching online, I apologize if the sound is bad. We're working on it, and we're going to have a great feed for you within a couple of weeks. Um, your Bibles. Get them out. Get them out. And I want you to open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Just so you know how the evening's going to go tonight, I'm going to give you a quick Bible study. I'll try to be quick so I can hand the microphone over to, to uh, our chef tonight, Nikki Haddad. And, uh, but I want to kind of, for the Institute, we're not just about eating food, okay? We're also about learning the truth. And so we're going to have this little bit of a Bible study about uh, theology about divine revelation and uh, regarding food in the Bible. And Nikki will be talking more in detail about specific foods and specific stories, but I want to kind of set the tone for the evening. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in His own image. In, his, in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. 
and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. I'll read you a short quotation from St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise in which he says, Nothing there in paradise is useless. Both grass and roots bring benefit and profit. Whoever tastes them is rejuvenated. Whoever breathes in their scent grows fair. In the bosom of its blossoms and flowers is hidden a veritable treasure, a gift for those who pluck it. The fruits of paradise bear rich wealth for those who gather them. Who has ever beheld such a banquet in the very bosom of a tree? The fruits of paradise bear rich wealth for those who gather them. When St. Ephraim is talking about the fruits of paradise, he's talking about something more than just the physical things and natural sustenance. He's speaking about a supernatural order that is rooted in the natural order. And this is fundamental to our Christian faith. That the natural order is meant to bear the divine image. Not just man and woman, but everything about creation is supposed to be um, shot through with divine life. We see that in Genesis chapter 2 more clearly. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The second creation account, which gives us a more up-close and, and uh, a view which is based on the covenant between man and God. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life, what would happen to them? What do the Scriptures say? They would live forever. The tree of life. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, God said, not now. The Father said the tree of knowledge of good and evil was made good for man. But man had to be prepared to be able to receive that gift. To receive that gift. I often uh, use the image of the child who wants to get the cookies inside the oven. And mom says, don't touch it. Don't touch it. The cookies are for the kids. And someday, the parents, the whole goal is to get the kids to understand how to open the oven properly and to get the good things inside. But not for you, not right now. Similarly with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the tree of life was meant to be a place where man could come and eat from that tree. To eat the fruit of the garden and receive life. Not just any old life, but eternal life. The life of God. For God alone lives forever. We were meant in the beginning to eat of the created things of this world and receive through eating the gift of God's own life. 
as I've spoken many times at the Institute of Catholic Culture about salvation history, all of salvation history is focused upon this place of paradise. And the ancient people of the Middle East believed that place of the Garden of Eden of paradise was actually Jerusalem, Palestine, the center of the earth, the Mediterranean, the place where God had planted man in the beginning, placed man in the beginning. And it was from there that he was cast out of paradise. And notice when man is called back into relationship with God, God calls Abraham, Abram, from out in the distance, out in the east, in Ur of the Chaldees, and brings him back to what place as an inheritance? The Holy Land. Jerusalem, And it is that mountain, the mountain of Jerusalem, which he climbs to offer Isaac in sacrifice. And it is there that he prophesies that God will provide the lamb which will take away the sins of the world. It is from there that uh, Israel and his 12 sons were exiled out to Egypt and became slaves in a foreign land. And it was to that land that Moses was called. That land which would flow with milk and honey. It was from that same land that during the Babylonian exile, the people were again taken out, and it was back to that land, the land they believed to be the Garden of Eden, that man was called back into communion with God. And it was to that place that Jesus Christ came to save us, to save man who had been in this constant flux back and forth between communion and exile, and He took to Himself our human nature. Now no longer can man be exiled from God because we are united to God in the eternal Word, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Why am I talking about this? Because every single time that the Bible tells us that the people of God are called back into communion with God, they are called back into that place. And over and over again, the stress is placed upon the food that man finds in that garden, in that place. That land which flowed with milk and honey. That land which grew with wheat. And notice what we learn in Genesis. That man is given the fruit of paradise that bears seed within it. Because within that fruit is the kernel of life. The whole created order, not just the tree of life, was meant to bear the divine life, to have that seed of life, that Adam and Eve would recognize that gift of God and eat and feast because of that gift and give thanks, Eucharist, to give thanks to God for what He had received. And in that place, we, we hear about, again, milk and honey, signs of life, wheat, bunches of wheat filled with seeds, what else? What other kinds of foods do we hear about? What's the one tree we know was in the Garden of Eden? The fig tree, right? Because they went and got the leaf from it. When you open up a fig, how many of you have eaten a fig before? How many of you have eaten a fresh fig before? Oh, it's pretty good. And what's inside it? Filled. Thousands of seeds. What other things do we hear about in paradise in the promised land? Pomegranates. How many of you have eaten a pomegranate before? What's inside a pomegranate? Seeds. Hundreds and thousands of seeds. And around those sweet seeds, the most delicious fruit to tell you the truth of God's gift of His life. And it was 
to that land and to those people that our Savior was born, who came to give us back access to that which we lost in paradise. And therefore, He took to Himself bread. And He said, eat of this and you will live forever. Giving us back what Adam and Eve had lost in the beginning, namely access to the tree of life. Notice, God wanted us to enjoy the things of the created order, but receiving those things to know, to come to recognize and worship the gift of God contained therein. He took not just bread, but wine also, and not just wine, but water and oil, and took the whole of the created order and divinized it so that when we came to the things of this world, we would be brought up to come to know the one who had made them, God himself. And we would be restored to friendship with God like Adam and Eve before the fall. When I'm about to turn the microphone over to our chef, Nikki Haddad, but I want you to remember as she's speaking that these foods are not just common foods. They're not just tasty foods. They're foods which are meant to tell us about God himself, about the gift of God and what he wants from us in our life. Okay, and with that, I will turn the, the microphone over to our chef. Please welcome Nikki Haddad. Oh, I've got her microphone. Why don't you all stand up and stretch your legs for just a minute, and we'll get this all lined up. Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for coming out on this very, very cold evening. Um, if I wasn't presenting, I probably wouldn't be here, so I applaud all of you for coming out. Um, as Deacon Sabatino said, uh, my name is Nikki Haddad. I'm a personal chef, and I um, we're good. cook for folks um, all over Montgomery County. I teach classes at Suburban Hospital, and mostly what I do teach out there is Mediterranean cooking. And um, just so happens that Mediterranean is a topic for night as well, but just with a little twist. Uh, I don't think it's by chance that the Mediterranean diet is known to be one of the healthiest diets in the world. And more than diet, I mean way of life, the way of eating. I think there was a greater plan there that somebody had something in mind when they brought the foods of the Mediterranean to Earth and um, the fact that we're still eating them today. The foods that you sample tonight, believe it or not, are the same foods that Jesus may have eaten when he sat with the tax collectors, when he sat with the rich. Abraham served lentils at the wedding. Um, Laban served fava beans when Jacob married his daughter. He chose her over, over another. And he was so pleased, he put on a major feast and he served fava beans. Okay? So what you're eating tonight are the very, very same foods they ate in the biblical days. Almost every ingredient up here, and I'll talk about that as we go through and prepare. Um, I hope that you very much enjoyed the food that you tried tonight. The, the diet is very simplistic. It's using whole foods, not a lot of processed foods, if any at all. Well, back in the biblical days, they weren't processed other than by hand. And when I mean hand, I have a tool here tonight that was used in the biblical days. Sorry, I hope I didn't uh, blast anybody's ears out with that. But we continue to use some of the same tools today that were used way back when. Um, I was asked and have been asked how, what sparked my interest in foods of the Bible. And there were two things way back in college. 
um, that did that for me, just so you get a little idea of, of why I teach this class, why I looked into this. Um, I went to a small Catholic college in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I had the good fortune of being able to go on an archaeology dig in the north of Jordan, just south of Iraq and Syria on one side, Lebanon on another. And I spent a summer digging in what was thought to be a cemetery. And um, we did, in fact, unearth skeletons. Um, we had somebody from the Smithsonian with us who was able to look at the shards and the pottery. It was very, very rich with pottery that we found. And there was an area where there was uh, said to be a kitchen. And we had experts on, on staff with us that would tell us exactly where they did the cooking, where they did their eating, where things were stored. We found bits of seed, bits of grain. Um, the city that I dug in was about 1 to 200. It was occupied about 1 to 200 A.D. So it wasn't exactly in biblical times, but for me it was close enough. But when I held some of those pieces of pottery in my hands or some of those wine glasses or drinking vessels that we found, of course, being someone who loved to cook and loved to eat, it made me wonder, I, I wonder what they ate in these vessels. And when I came back and kind of looked into it, I was somewhat surprised and somewhat disappointed that it was the same food my mom made for us every Friday night during Lent, lentils and rice. It's like, come on, it had to be better than this. Fava beans? You've got to be kidding me. But truthfully, truth be told, it was this very same food that was put on my table week after week. And I do come from a Mediterranean background, so I've been eating this food all of my life. Um, so uh, if you enjoyed it tonight, you know, as I said, this is the kind of thing you can be doing after tonight's demonstration. The second thing that um, got me interested in, in what people eat, um, in, in, again, as I said, I went to a Catholic college, and a part of the requirements for graduation were to read a book by Nikos Kazantzakis called The Last Temptation of Christ. Maybe some of you are familiar, maybe not. But what it did was uh, it really, I thought, attacked Catholics. And I grew up Eastern Orthodox, uh, married a Malkite. My husband's over here uh, with the cookbooks. And, um, but what it did, and in, in a way I felt like it attacked the Catholics because what it did, it made Jesus human. It made him man. If we're going to accept him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we believe in the Trinity, then we needed to accept him as man. And in order to do that, the book really made him man. And so we would have discussions on a daily basis of, well, if Jesus was traveling all around, he had to stop and sleep. What did he sleep on? Where did he sleep? Where was he welcomed? What did he eat? That was the question. Again, loving food and being a cook, even at that point, um, it made me wonder, what did he eat? And we had several discussions on the matter. Some experts were brought in. And again, disappointment. Lentils and rice. It's like, no, this is impossible. It couldn't possibly be that he ate the same things that we're eating today. Um, and so, therefore, I kind of embarked on a little bit of a study here and uh, wanted to share with you this evening some of those very foods um, that Jesus may have eaten, and even before Jesus, before the time of Jesus. So the first recipe, we'll, we'll take a walk over here and, and take a look at... Um, you all have a copy of the recipe? Does everybody have one? Okay, if you do not, this might be a good time for you to head over to the table here and pick up a recipe so you can follow along. Jay will help you with that. If you'd like to make some notes, you can do that as well. Um, the Bible virtually opens up with a meal. As Deacon Sabatino mentioned earlier, Adam and Eve eating from the tree of good and evil, the forbidden tree. It opened up eating, okay? And as the Bible goes on, food is mentioned many, many, many times over. Olives are mentioned 55 times in the Bible. Um, it was You could see that food was very important. It was co a connection between spirit and flesh throughout the Bible. 
Um, it goes on to talk about the very first Passover meal. And there's also, obviously, the story of one of the most famous meals ever, the Last Supper. So you can see that food is very, very important to the people of the Bible. Um, one of the most important ingredients, again, as Deacon Sabatino mentioned, is wheat, whole wheat. Uh, it's abundant throughout the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern areas, and especially in the Holy Land. There's um, several, several varieties of wheat, literally thousands of varieties of wheat. Most of them are broken down by the season that they're grown, and they had different growing seasons in the Holy Land. The wheat that we use tonight, if you tried the wheat berry salad, is a hard winter wheat. Okay, It's the whole grain of wheat, which looks like this, prior to having cooked it tonight. This is what it looked like. Okay, It contains all the parts of the wheat berry, which makes it a very healthy. And I will talk about health benefits tonight as well. That's just what I do. So I hope you enjoy that part of this as well. But the whole wheat berry is very, very healthy. It um, is full of fiber. And it helps to pull free radicals out of the body. And like I said, there was a greater power involved here when the Mediterranean diet was developed because it just all works so well. Uh, the fiber will pull free radicals out of the body, which will help prevent things such as heart disease, certain types of cancer, high blood pressure, stroke, obesity, type 2 diabetes. Uh, and what, what happens, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, let me back up just a moment. Uh, the wheat berries, as you'll see according to this recipe, if you all take a look at your harvest wheat berry salad, this is a type of wheat that was cooked in the fall. Now what happens is the hard winter wheat berries are planted in the fall. They lay dormant over the winter, they grow in the spring, and are harvested in the summer to be eaten in the fall. And the people of the Bible had to plan like this because they did have some rough winters now and then and, and needed to plan food that could be cooked and kept, especially for the Passover. The Hebrews are not allowed to light fires on the night of the, of the Passover, so they weren't allowed to cook. So they had to look ahead. What can I make and prepare so that all I have to do is eat it? on the Passover rather than cook it on the Passover. They could could not cook. And to this day, many, many, many uh, folks of Jewish faith do not cook on the Sabbath. So they prepare their food beforehand. And this is one of the most exemplary recipes that they might make, or ingredients, I should say. It's something with the wheat berry. It's sustenance. It's protein. It's very filling. You can do a lot of things, sweet, savory with it. So they would prepare something like this to be able to eat on the eve of the Sabbath. Okay, um, I'm going to walk through the recipe with you, tell you a little bit how I made what it was tonight, and if you enjoyed it, I hope that you go home and make this as well. A lot of people are under the misconception that it's hard to cook wheat berries because you have to soak them overnight. Not true. The wheat berries that you ate this evening were cooked in a pot for one hour. Okay, You want to rinse them off because they're kind of covered with a little bit of dust and dirt, and you want to kind of sort through them because even today, with today's uh, technology, you might get little stones and shards of different things in your wheat. So sort through it, rinse it off, put it in a pot, bring it to a boil, let it go 45 minutes to an hour. You want it to be al dente. You don't want a pot of mush. Okay? So just check on it. And when it's just firm enough to chew, just getting that little bit of nutty flavor out of it, turn it off, cool it down, and go ahead and continue on with the recipe that you're using with your wheat berries. Okay. So we've boiled our wheat berries, simmered them, drained them, and set them aside. The wheat berries are now in a bowl. 
we are going to take some walnuts. And walnuts were eaten during the biblical days. Um, oil was made from them. And also, uh, they were eaten, they were a luxury in the biblical days, the walnuts. And so folks really used them for special occasions. They weren't brought out all the time. They were only brought out, you know, in special occasions and also the wealthy. The wealthy had the ability to eat them because they were very expensive. Okay? So we're going to add some walnuts. And today we'll tell you that, I'm sorry? The ones I'm using are English, yes. The black walnut was really not used um, for cooking in the biblical days, okay? Um, the walnut today, we will tell you, is very beneficial to the body. It has something called omega-3 fatty acids, and it helps prevent uh, heart disease. So doctors recommend that if you can get an ounce and a half of walnuts daily in your diet, you can reduce the chance of heart disease by about 60%, okay? Um, that does go for other nuts as well, but the walnut is the most highly acclaimed. You can use that same method with pistachios, with almonds, with hazelnuts and Brazil nuts, but the walnut is the most highly acclaimed. The other great thing about walnuts is, though they do have fat, it's a monounsaturated fat, and so you can eat them, but you have to watch how much you eat because they do have fat, okay? And if you toast them, as I did tonight, it brings out more of the oils and the flavor, so you'll eat less of them and be satisfied with less. The flavor becomes better, you will eat less, okay? So try to get as much walnut into your diet as you can, an ounce and a half a day, five days a week. The other thing we're going to go ahead and put in are raisins. Now, raisins were another uh, fruit that was very, very widely eaten throughout the Holy Land through biblical days, Old and New Testament alike. Um, grapes were abundant in the Holy Land. So they were eaten, eaten fresh as grapes. They were dried to make raisins. Now, raisins, though they're high in sugar, they're very high nutritionally also. And so for those who traveled, and today we travel, we get in our car and we drive an hour. It took them three days to get where they were going. And they needed food, and especially if they were crossing the desert. So what they would do is dry your fruit, the dates, the figs, the raisins especially, because they were so abundant, and take them on trips with them. It also nourished uh, laborers. They didn't have a lot of money nor a lot of time to eat. So what they would do is eat a handful of raisins as they worked, and it would help give them the energy they needed to continue on. Very high in sugar, very high in energy, but very high in nutrition as well. Okay? So we're going to put some grapes into our, in with our wheat today. Okay. We're also going to put a little dash of cinnamon. Cinnamon was a very, very expensive spice in the biblical days. Um, it was used very much for trade. It was worth 15 times the amount of silver in the days of the Bible. So you would always find it in the marketplace. The caravans would carry it from place to place with them and sell it for money or for goods, for services, whatever the trade-off would be. Cinnamon is very healthy for you in the sense that it's what's called an antioxidant. And we're hearing a lot these days about antioxidants. You hear it on the ocean spray cranberry commercials and tomato soup commercials. Very quickly, what antioxidants are, they are nutritionals that go into your body, nutrients that go into your body by way of food, natural, whole food, what you see up here. Do you notice all the color up here? It's a very colorful table, okay? This is the Mediterranean table, very full of color. Antioxidants come into your body by the way of color in your food. Every color protects your body against something different. 
For those of you who remember when you were little, your mom would say, eat your carrots, they're good for your eyes. She wasn't lying. Sweet potatoes, carrots, they contain things that protect against macular degeneration and loss of eyesight as we age. So you want to get as much beta carotene from those carrots as you can. That's an antioxidant. Now, free radicals are things that float around, try to penetrate your cells and cause things like arterial sclerosis, certain types of cancer, um, as we talked about earlier, obesity, all these different devastating diseases that really do multiply and increase as we grow older as well. So you want to get as much antioxidant as you can to help fight off those uh, free radicals from penetrating the cell and causing these diseases. And the Mediterranean diet is a perfect way to do that. Now, you have to eat antioxidants on a daily basis. Antioxidants are eliminated as you eliminate on a, a, the natural process of elimination in the body. So you need to eat them daily. All the colors of the rainbow. The darker the color, the po more powerful the antioxidant. We have a, a bowl here of brown fava beans. This is a very powerful antioxidant. The only bean stronger would be a black bean because it's more vibrant in its color. As you go down the scheme of colors, red kidney bean, pinto bean, what light pink beans, the antioxidants become a little less, but they're still very important. So try to get a variety of color in your diet every day in order to help ward off uh, disease, okay? So the cinnamon, once again, is a very powerful antioxidant. Um, a lot of people misjudge spices and herbs. In the Mediterranean food, as you can see, we have a lot of spices and herbs up here. The Mediterranean food is full of herbs and spices that will help your body naturally fight disease if you would only eat them. And please eat them as fresh as you can. Um, it's amazing the uh, flavor in a fresh lime or a fresh lemon as opposed to that jar or bottle you might open up that's been processed. And a lot of times when I'm up here cutting and demonstrating some of these foods, the folks in the first several front rows will say, oh my gosh, that smells so good. It's such a difference and it does such a, such a favor to your body, you know, to eat fresh as much as you can, as the people of the Bible did. The other thing cinnamon does in your body, it reduces inflammation. And inflammation, a lot of people will right away assume, oh, asthma and arthritis, but not just asthma and arthritis. Heart disease is also caused by inflammation, inflammation of the blood vessels. The cinnamon that you eat keeps the blood flowing through the blood vessels so that it doesn't narrow and cause heart attacks, okay? I know people who swear by eating cinnamon every day. They put it in their diet every day to keep the blood flowing. It's fabulous. Alrighty, back to the recipe. And I have to keep looking down at my recipe. I always tell folks in my classes, forgive me when I have to look down. I'm not a Food Network star who has a teleprompter in the back telling them everything they need to know. So I do have to look down once in a while. Um, we have our cinnamon and then we have our vinaigrette, which tonight the vinaigrette that you had was made out of a raspberry vinaigrette. And raspberries did exist in the Bible as well. They did eat them. Powerful antioxidant. That deep red color does wonders, especially for certain types of cancers in your body. Berries are absolutely wonderful in the colon to help bring free radicals out and help to prevent colorectal cancer. So you want to get as much of that type of thing as you can into your body, any kind of berry. So we're just going to put a little bit of vinegar in here. And the other ingredient we combine with that is some olive oil. And tonight we've used extra virgin olive oil. Again, a powerful antioxidant. Like I said, all of this just keeps coming up, and this is the food that the people of the Bible ate on a daily basis. They didn't know about antioxidants. They had no idea what the word meant. But nowadays, modern science will tell us 
what it means and what it does for our body. They just ate it. It was what was there. It's what God provided them with to keep their bodies healthy, to allow them to work, the Israelite, the Hebrews, to work under the Egyptians. It, you know, it, it's just amazing to me how everything comes together and works. The olive, extra virgin olive oil is the darkest of the oils. You can see the difference here. Regular olive oil, extra virgin olive oil. This one is a little more green. Okay. What that means is it has a little bit more antioxidant power to it. It has a stronger flavor for those of you who are not used to it. Um, it is a bit of a powerful flavor, but you do, uh, after using it time and time again, become used to it. Sometimes I suggest mixing the two together, you know, to get you started on eating it. Olive oil is also a monounsaturated fat. That's one of the reasons people of the Mediterranean have one of the lower incidence of heart disease throughout the world. And Harvard, Harvard did a study on this, and they will tell you that it's so. Um, when you eat monounsaturated fat, it ha not only is beneficial to the heart because you're not eating the saturated fats that clog the arteries, but it actually lowers the bad cholesterol in your body. Okay? So you want to get as much olive oil into your diet as you can. And we'll add a little bit of that into our salad here as well. Okay. And something I'm going to add that is not on our list of ingredients, uh, and you can do this if, if you don't happen to like raisins or don't have them, you can add cranberries. And we're going to add some pomegranate in tonight as well. Again, powerful form of antioxidants. Look at that vibrant red. Especially, gentlemen, I'd like to speak to you. The red pigment that gives pomegranate its color is called lycopene. And it really, really has powerful effects on prostate cancer. So you want to eat as much red as you can in your diet. Tomatoes, the red in the color of the tomatoes, as I said, the raspberry, watermelon, any kind of a red pigment has lycopene, and it really is powerful against the prostate cancer. So we'll toss some of those in. Pomegranates were eaten throughout the biblical days. I first remember learning about pomegranates in... Ninth grade, I took Bible as a literature, Bible as a literature course. And I remember having to read the Song of Solomon's, and it was my turn to read when the part came up for any of you who have read the Song of Songs. It was my turn to read when he compared the pomegranate to his love's body part. And you can just imagine a bunch of 13 and 14 year olds reading the Song of Solomon and having to read some of these. Oh, it was just devastating. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. I apologize for that. Yes, yes. If you're, yes, if you're making, yes, thank you for the question. If you're making your own, it's a quarter cup of vinegar to a half a cup of olive oil. Okay? I, I occasionally try to make recipes easy so that people will make them. So occasionally I will put something like a prepared vinaigrette. And you can do that, certainly, or you can make your own by following that ingredient level. Okay? All righty. We have our platter ready. We're going to take a little bit of arugula. For any of you who have ever eaten arugula, it has kind of a bitter flavor to it. Arugula was thought to be one of the bitter greens that was eaten during the Passover meals by the ancient Hebrews. Um, it was as a memory as to how they were treated and toiled under the Egyptians. And they used to take the arugula and dip it in little vats of olive oil and vinegar. 
much like we make our vinaigrette today and dip our, or we pour it onto our salads. Well, they didn't have utensils in the Old Testament. Jesus, during Jesus' time, they did have utensils. They had spoons and knives came around. Forks were a little bit after that. But they would take a handful of the herbs and it was considered rude to, you know, um, eat from this. So you would take your olive oil, dip it in, take another uh, bowl of vinegar, dip it in, and eat. And it was eaten from a communal plate. They were very big into communal plates. They would sit on the floor. If any of you have ever been to Marrakesh, the Moroccan restaurant, you sit on, or on the floor on couches all around eating from a communal plate. And that's the way they ate in the Old Testament days and, and into the New Testament as well. So we've got our arugula, our bitter greens. Plate our salad. It's a beautiful salad. It's really nice during the holidays. And as I said, a lot of health benefits to it. You can also make it for breakfast. And as you can see, a very pretty bowl of healthy biblical wheat. Okay. Thank you. I should mention we also added some apples into tonight's um, salad. You can add whatever kind of fruit you like, dried fruit, fresh fruit, whatever works for your family and what they like. Okay? All right, moving on to the next recipe. We're going on to our fava beans. And I hope you all had a chance to enjoy that, some of that tonight. Fava beans were documented back to about 4,500 B.C. Uh, Bioarchaeologists, I'm sorry, archaeobotanists found remnants of fava beans um, in the tombs of Egyptian pharaohs. As you may or may not know, the Egyptians believed in the afterlife. And so they would build these tombs and put stacks and stacks of fava beans inside for the deceased to enjoy until they came back for their next life. Okay? Fava beans are a very, very great source of protein and fiber, by the way. And so, again, travelers throughout the Holy Land in the time of the biblical days would enjoy their fava beans. It would keep them going all day long. So fava beans are something they could take along with them dry, put into some type of a uh, liquid, and enjoy later on in the day. By the time they, they ended their journey, they would be hydrated. And they would put a little bit of lemon, a little bit, I'm sorry, a little bit of olive oil. Lemons were, were not necessarily known during the, the Bible, but we'll cover that when we get to lemon. Um, they would put a little bit of olive oil and garlic on their beans and eat it in the evening by the end of the day's journey. Okay? So very, very high in energy, very, very high in, in protein. Okay. So we've got our beans. And again, you can purchase dry beans if you like. I tend to buy the canned beans. And I... You know, the difference in flavor is there, but today we're all very, very busy, and not everybody has time to soak beans. So in the case of canned beans, I encourage people to try them so that you will eat healthier and eat these recipes. The one thing I would recommend that you do is when you open a can of beans, be sure to rinse it. By rinsing off the beans, you rinse off about 35% of the sodium that's been packed into that can of beans. So always, always rinse your beans. Try to find low-sodium, no-sodium packed beans when you make these recipes also. Um, and now we are going to get our garbanzo beans. I'm sorry. You know, I knew somebody would ask, so I brought a can along just to show you. 
I'll leave it up here for anybody who wants to come up and see how you buy fava beans if you enjoyed the salad and would like to purchase them yourself. They really come in all different sizes. They even come in different colors. They come dry. They come fresh. Um, any way you want to buy them. But this is the, the can that I used. Okay? But I'll leave it up here, and for anybody who'd like to come up and take a look, feel free. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. The dry fathers do require a soak, and I usually would do it overnight. Yes, in, in the... Yes, I would cook them. The, the beans you ate today were cooked. They were warmed. The garbanzo as well as the fava were warmed. When you take them out of the can, they're a little bit firm. So when you warm them up, they soften to a nice eating consistency. I don't like them mushy. Some people will mash this to the hummus, if you know what hummus is. They'll mash their fava beans into a hummus-type consistency or a paste. Okay. Personally, I don't prefer it that way, so I leave them a little bit firm, and that's how you have them tonight. Okay. So you just cook them a little bit longer, and then you can mash them with your pestle or the back of a spoon, whatever you like, okay, if you like that consistency as well. Yes. Sure. Okay. So we're going to put our garbanzo beans in there as well. And then garbanzo beans were found as far back as 5500 B.C. So these have been eaten for a long, long time. Beans have been sustenance for many thousands and thousands of years in history. Two to three cloves of mashed garlic. People of the Bible loved garlic. They ate it with and on everything, and rightfully so. Bunches of, of garlic were also buried with the pharaohs in their tomb as well. Um, Garlic has many, many health benefits. Again, it helps to lower bad cholesterol and raise good cholesterol. It helps to thin the blood and keep it flowing through the body. It helps to regulate blood sugar in those who suffer from or are suffering from pre-diabetes or have type 2 diabetes. So what I've done is I've just cut a couple garlic cloves up here and put it into my Biblical vessel. Amazing, amazing in today's modern technology that I haven't learned to use a garlic press. I was raised using one of these. My grandparents, who came from Lebanon, brought a marble, a marble one on a boat two months from Lebanon. I don't know how they carried it. I can't pick it up myself. But it was that important to them that they carried it for two months on a boat between Lebanon and the United States. Um, in the biblical days, this is how they used to mash their spices. This is how they would crush their meat if they were going to make some type of a ground meat dish. They would put it into one of these, and you'll see me now in just a moment, beating on it to get it to form a paste. It's just amazing how some things just never go out of style. <laughs> and so we're just going to mash it up to a fine consistency, and you can put garlic into this recipe to taste, however much you like. I used three heads in the recipe I made you earlier this evening. I'm not sure if you could all taste it. But. I'm not sure if the people of the Bible knew that also putting parsley with garlic will help uh, with the breast situation. So for any of you who may not know that, it does work. But again, I believe there was a major plan in the way that we eat and it probably was there. They probably knew it. 
So we're going to put some garlic in. Add some scallions. Again, scallions, really wonderful, a lot of fiber. They're a natural diuretic, as is parsley. So again, if you suffer from inflammation, water on the heart, water around the lungs, if you tend to carry water in the body, eating these natural diuretics help to release that water. And again, something I don't think just happened for no reason. I think it was meant to be that way. We'll put our parsley in. And you can use the curly or the flat, whatever you like. Parsley was also prized at the time of the Bible. It was used as a spice and as a garnish in biblical days. We're going to put some extra virgin olive oil in. Lemons. Lemons are another po uh, powerful antioxidant in the body. They help to fight, fight disease. As you all know, this time of year, you want to eat as many lemons as you can. A great way to get the most juice out of your lemon is to put it into the microwave for about 20 seconds. It just comes spurting with juice. A little easier than the rolling on the counter, although if you didn't get your workout in that day, that might be the way to go. Now, lemons were not necessarily thought to exist during the time of the Bible, but there was a fruit called a citron that was the predecessor to the lemon that did occur throughout the Holy Land. If you go there now, it's everywhere. I'm told the lemon trees in Lebanon bear fruit year-round. Pounds and pounds and pounds of lemon throughout the year. Okay. We'll use a little bit of sea salt and fresh ground pepper to taste. Now, a lot of people are under the misconception that sea salt is, uh, less, has less sodium than regular table salt. It does not. It has the same amount of sodium. However, what it does have is more minerals in it. So you're getting a bit of a healthier product by using the sea salt. The other thing that sea salt does is, as you can see, for those of you who aren't familiar, the crystals are much larger than regular table salt. So a little goes a long way. Just by virtual pop in your mouth that this coarse crystal of salt gives you, you will eat less salt. So if you have concerns about high blood pressure or hypertension, um, you might want to switch over to sea salt and use a lot less of it than you would the table salt. Pepper, again, it was a very prized spice back in the biblical days. Um, it was most likely brought into the area by the caravans that traveled into the Holy Land, and it was traded in all of the marketplaces. It was very, very, very highly used in most of the foods. And in a way, you can see why. Beans without pepper, <laughs> lentils without a little pepper, could be a little bland. So it gave that food the pop that it needed. Okay, mix that up. 
I talked my way through this recipe, but literally you can make this in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Beans are a very prized food of the world's poor. Most people, when they say they eat beans, mean that they ate that day. Um, but it's not so bad. I mean, if you tried the beans tonight, I think they're wonderful. They're full of fiber. They're full of protein. They're full of complex carbohydrate. That's the type of starch that's in them. And what that means is, <clears throat> for instance, if you eat a Snicker bar, okay, it shoots you up, gives you energy for about 30 minutes, and then all of a sudden you drop, and all you want to do is go take a nap, okay? When you eat something like this, the carbohydrate in the beans is kind of like a time-release caplet. You've heard of time-release capsules? Okay. It gives you punches of energy. So if you eat a bean meal, let's say, at 12 o'clock, it gives you a punch of energy at 1, and another punch at 2, and another punch at 3. So it keeps you going all day, and it helps you get through to your next meal. It doesn't cause spikes in your blood sugar, okay? So not only is it good for folks that suffer from diabetes, but for those who are trying to prevent diabetes, okay? So try to get your beans and enjoy those that they enjoyed in the Bible. Put a little tomatoes on there to color it up a little bit. Get the lycopene, gentlemen. The last recipe we're going to take a look at is a lentil and rice dish, otherwise known as Esau's pottage. Now, most of you may know the story about Esau in the Bible. He sold his birthright for a bowl of lentils. He chose the flesh over the spirit, in a sense. Um, Esau was a hunter, and his twin brother Jacob was a shepherd. And Jacob loved to cook, and Esau loved to hunt. And Isaac, who was their father, um, was getting very old. And he summoned his son one day. He said, um, Esau, come. I'm very hungry. Please go catch some wild game and make me some food. I'm very hungry for this food. And so, and, and he said, and when you come back, I'll give you my riches. Well, Esau was the firstborn of the twins, which means he got double the inheritance that Jacob would get. Now, Rebecca loved Jacob more, okay? And so she called Jacob over and she said, hey, you know, your brother's going out to hunt and your dad's ready to give up his riches. Go make your dad some food and go bring back some goat skin because Esau was very hairy, okay? And if dad was to reach out and touch his son, he would know the difference because Jacob had very smooth skin, okay? So Esau went out to hunt. Jacob came, made this lentil pottage, got his goat skins on, and when Esau returned, he was famished, and he said, please, Jacob, give me some of those lentils. And Jacob said, only if you promise to give me your birthright. And Esau was kind of like, yeah, yeah, little brother, fine, go ahead, have my birthright, I just want that bowl of lentils, okay? So he gave his birthright to his brother. Jacob, uh, Jacob went to the father, and he said, boy, you know, you sound like Esau, I'm sorry, you sound like Jacob, but your skin sure feels like Esau. So, here's your treasure. And he ended up giving up his birthright for a bowl of lentils. Now, you all might agree they were good, but I don't think they were that good. <laughs> yeah. 
However, so that's the story of Esau and his lentils. Um, we are making this with rice tonight. However, rice did not exist at this time. I did it with rice tonight because so many people that come to these types of lectures and demos um, are uh, intolerant of eating wheat products, and we already had a wheat product, so I thought we would substitute a white, a rice, and also show you how you can vary some of these recipes. Um, you could have used cracked wheat as well. It's very, very typical in modern Middle East to use cracked wheat in this recipe instead of the rice that we're using tonight. But again, I didn't want to second a wheat recipe, so we're going to go ahead and use some rice in this recipe this evening, okay? It was likely that Jacob probably used barley or um, the cracked wheat to make this recipe with. Barley was also very, um, very well known throughout the biblical, through, through the biblical lands. So what we've done, and again, a lot of people will soak lentils before cooking them. Not necessary. These lentils were cooked for 15 minutes. Okay, I rinse them off, put them in a pot with water. As soon as it comes to a boil, I set my timer for 15 minutes, and I don't cook them much longer. Most people cook lentils to death, and, and most recipes will instruct you to do that. I, I don't understand why. Again, I think it's nice to have them a little bit al dente, a little bit firm. So that's how the lentils were cooked this evening. There's also a large variety of lentils. It was believed that Esau probably um, ate of either the brown or green lentil variety, but there are several others out there. Um, red lentils will totally disintegrate when you cook them. They make a great base for soups and that type of thing. Um, but, okay, so what we've done is we've rinsed our lentils, put them in a pot, brought them to a boil, let them simmer for 15 to 20 minutes until firm, but still uh, that they hold their shape. I rinse them off with a little bit of cold water to stop the cooking process. If you don't do that, they continue to cook and become a bowl of mush, okay? Um, while the lentils are cooking, I made my rice. Okay, again, cook till al dente, not a mushy thing. You don't want mushy rice. We'll add our rice to the lentils. And you simply season this with a little bit of that sea salt and fresh ground pepper. Again, a very good source of fiber. And something else that I don't think was any accident. When you combine a bean and a grain, you form a complete protein. So during periods of fasting, this is a fabulous uh, meal to eat because you're getting all the essential amino acids that you would get from eating a steak in Esau's pottage. Okay. Again, a bean and a grain combined form a complete protein. Okay? So it keeps you going. It keeps you going. It gives you what you need. For those who may not know, in the Melkite Church, we completely abstain from meat products during Lent and several other times during the year as well. And the reason we're not walking around exhausted and tired is because we have these beautiful age-old recipes to refer to that keep us strong, keep us feeling healthy, keep us full, and not wanting. Okay, we've also caramelized some onions. Okay, this is a step that is by choice. Not everybody does it. But onions were talked about in the Bible. I, I believe Deacon Sabatino read the verse, uh, the opening, one of the opening verses, and talked about onions and garlic and God having given everything to us. So they were definitely meant to eat. 
We put those over the top. And then this is eaten with a dollop of yogurt on top, traditionally. And yogurt, another very, very popular biblical food, especially among the shepherds. Uh, back in those days, the shepherds would take a sheep's stomach or intestines, rinse it out and clean it, and use it as a vessel for carrying milk all day. Okay? So they would put the milk into that vessel. And because of the hot sun and the movement of the pouch on the back of the goat or the camel, uh, it would cause the bacteria to mix with the milk and create yogurt. And that's somewhat how I make it today. I take a gallon of milk, I pour it into a pot, I bring it to a boil, thus the sun and the heat and the movement, the boiling. Once it gets to the boiling point, I turn it off, bring it between 110 and 120 degrees, add a starter, which must say has bacteria, contains bacteria, some of the yogurts today don't, okay? Pour it in, set it aside, eight hours later, I have a gallon of yogurt, okay? I make it the same way they did. I just have a stove to help me out. But really, the recipe came from the shepherds way back when. Amazing, isn't it? It's just amazing. Our yogurt goes on top of our lentils and rice. And voila, we have dinner. And there you have it. garnish on there. Alrighty. Well, that ends the part of the demonstration for the evening. If you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer. Um, I believe, is there still more food for folks to take part of? Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I told you we were going to have a lot of fun tonight. Well, that was a lot of fun. Okay. There are a few things. You guys really demolished the food. I, the lady set a plate aside, thank God, for me for dinner. And, um, and there's a little bit of wine left. I think we went through 12 magnum bottles of wine. When I was in the Mideast, the Greek yogurt was very nice, very mild. When I buy Greek yogurt here in the stores, it's very sharp and not as enjoyable, or I don't enjoy it as much. Can you please address sure. what the difference? Sure. I can only take a guess at that. Um, and I would say one of two things, the starter that's used, um, the age of the starter that's used can produce a different type of yogurt. The amount of time the bacteria is allowed to multiply, some people are very much against allowing their yogurt to sit out on the counter for, for eight hours. They'll put it in after two to four. becomes a bit of a sweeter yogurt, whereas if you leave it out longer, it can become a sour yogurt. There's also discrepancies as to whether you temper your starter or not, as to whether that makes a sweeter yogurt. Um, it depends on which grandmother you listen to. There's so many. <laughs> there are so many different um, things that it could be. Uh, I would suggest if you enjoyed the yogurt, you got there to look for Mediterranean market and try their yogurt because everybody's got a Greek yogurt these days, even Dan and everybody. And if you want traditional Middle Eastern yogurt, if you try some of the Middle Eastern or Mediterranean markets, you may find that if you liked what you had tonight, that's homemade. Um, <clears throat> I basically told you, you know, how to make that through the demo. It's also in the cookbook for those of you who may have bought it and how to strain it and make yogurt cheese as well. 
I highly recommend the homemade yogurt. It's the best. You can't beat it. It's not that hard, right? It's, it's not, not that hard to you make. You just need time because you have to, yeah. you know, be there for it. Don't let it boil over because it will make a mess of your stove. And yeah, but it's, it's, I make a gallon, about a gallon a week of yogurt and then another gallon that I make into yogurt cheese. It's just unbeatable. So make sure you get the, the yeah. cookbook. Yeah. And bring some to Deacon Sabatino when you come to the Institute. <laughs> Uh, this question is for either of you, really. Uh, one of the great food episodes in the Bible is Peter's dream in Acts of the Apostles. I was wondering if you had any comment on that from a culinary perspective. I'll defer. <laughs> uh, what, do you, what do you mean by a culinary perspective? <clears throat> like, how would it change people's eating habits, uh, tastes from a connoisseur's perspective? Yeah. yeah. Well, I would I would just say it really this is a question for my for my brother for, who's more of a biblical scholar. But the entire purpose of the episode is to goes back to what I was speaking of at the beginning that God made the created world good. He made it good. He made it very good. And all things are good for us at the right time in the right place in the right way. Um, the situation with the Jews and the and the uh, dietary laws that were given were a temporary fix. They were dealing with a situation when they were living in pagan Egypt, for example, and the things which they were not allowed to eat in Egypt, okay, uh, because those things were considered deities, God told them they had to eat, okay? So he reversed the laws so as to take Egypt out of Israel, Okay, to take it out of their heart. And so oftentimes the dietary laws that were given in the Old Testament were for a purpose of man being in a sinful situation. Okay, similar in some ways to our Lenten journey by which we give up certain things which are good for us for a time so as to correct our path toward God. Father Joseph will be speaking. By the way, I meant to mention this. We have a, a second program coming up with food uh, uh, during Lent, at the beginning of Lent. Talk, we're going to have... Um, a program talking about some Lenten foods and so forth, and Father Joseph will be speaking about our Lenten journey regarding foods. Um, and so I would just say regarding Peter that God then gives us back that which we lost, namely the goodness of creation. These things were made good for us and are meant to bear the divine life. Okay. In the story of the prodigal son, we have the fatted calf that is eaten at the end to celebrate. Could you tell me a bit about what, what meat eating was like back then and how important it was, to that, how symbolic it was that this was a fatted calf? Cows are very easy to get nowadays, but tell me a bit about back then. Right, right. Um, the ancients loved fat, loved it, okay? Not everybody was fortunate enough to have uh, the fatted calf to eat on a regular basis. The rich were. Um, the normal average guy kept his calf, kept his chickens to produce eggs, to produce milk, because that brought him more money than either selling the meat or eating it. So meat was mostly prepared for sacrifices and special occasions, except by the very wealthy who loved their fatted calf and ate it often. Did you want to add something to that? No, that's fine. That's okay. Fine. Okay, well, I have my favorite food recipe, food story from the Bible, and that's Sarah. Abraham, three men come to visit him, and he says to, a to Sarah, Hey, get a sheep, 
take it, fix it, whatever. And it sounds like they're just waiting a couple of hours. And I'm very impressed by Sarah. <laughs> How long can this really take? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I, she probably cooked it over an open fire, and considering that it's, yeah, exactly, clean it. <laughs> hey, they weren't in a hurry back then, like yeah. we are constantly in a hurry today. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned there. My question is citrons. Why do we not have citrons? It, it, they believe just to be, have become extinct and transferred over to the lemon and the lime and the orange trees that now flourish in the Holy Land. But there is evidence of the citron fruit. Uh, archaeobotanists have found evidence of it. But yeah, it just became extinct as far as my research has showed me. <laughs> With your lentils, instead of rice, could you have used quinoa? You could. You could use any grain with that. Or leave them out if you don't like, you know. But the, the health benefit is there for the grains, the bulking, the, yeah. But absolutely, you could use quinoa. Was millet known? Millet? I'm not sure You're not about sure. that. Father Joe, yes? Father yeah. Okay, there we go. You don't have to go to the Middle East, just come to our food festival every year. <laughs> uh, Chef Nikki, uh, yes. what kind of foods would the ancients have eaten for breakfast? The bean dish that we ate, the fava bean dish, I was going to tell you in Arabic, fool, it's called fool, uh, is a very popular breakfast dish. And it would keep them going all day. They needed nourishment. Most of the laborers would need nourishment to keep them going all day, so they would eat beans and this type of thing, hummus, something that, you know, mashed beans, whatever. Whatever they could do with beans would be a optimum breakfast. Also, uh, breads and dry fruits. Unleavened breads were the bread of the day. Um, and also dates, figs, nuts. These are the types of things that gave them energy to do their work and keep them going. Okay, one more question. Uh, were eggs used in the Bible? I mean, no one mentioned chickens anywhere or eggs or whatever. Yes, eggs were, were eaten in the Bible. Yes. Thank you very much, Nikki. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.